0: Good afternoon. I'm Annalise Fenhuizen, English major at Calvin, and I'd like to welcome you to the 2008 January series. As we open this discussion on language and faith with prayer, let us do so with words that are not worn out. Please join your hearts as I pray the inspired prayer of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 3. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in earth and heaven is named, grant that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And now, John Whitfleet, director of the Institute of Christian Worship, will introduce our speaker.
1: One reviewer said of Deborah Reinstra's memoir, Great with Child, It captures wonder and joy without being maudlin. It is theologically grounded without being preachy. Her second book, So Much More, in Introduction to Christian Spirituality, has been described as a radiant manifesto for the fully realized Christian life. One reader wrote in, I gave so much more to my brother-in-law who is a spiritual guru in his own right but has become very vague about his theology. He loved it. Another wrote, I'm giving this book to my hairdresser. She's so curious about Christianity and she's smart. I don't want to give her something shallow. One spoke glowingly about reading it with college students, while another wrote, you write so much as a daughter, a daughter of the church and of your parents and community, which is why older people appreciate your perspective on faith. Young, old, veteran Christians, seekers, no wonder Christianity Today awarded her its annual book award in apologetics. Here at Calvin College, Deborah Reinstra teaches early modern modern British literature, world literature, Shakespeare, composition, and poetry. She's a frequently published poet and a professional soccer mom. And in a memorable section in So Much More, she talks about her ambition for old age to be a church lady, the kind who knows the names of all the kids who sit nearby her in church. And it's all of this, I suggest, that make her so well qualified to address us today on the topic of how writers help us renew religious language. Calvin College is very grateful today to Peter and Pat Cook for underwriting today's presentation. Please welcome Deborah Reinstra.
2: Good afternoon. It's a great honor to stand here and represent the students and faculty and staff of Calvin College. I, I want to thank Christy Potter for this honor. I'm very humbled by it and um, appreciative too that you have come to spend an hour of your time. So I hope it's well spent. Messenger My work is loving the world. Here are the sunflowers, there are the hummingbird, equal seekers of sweetness. Here the quickening yeast, there the blue plums. Here the clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. The Phoebe, the delphinium, the sheep in the pasture, in the pasture, which is mostly rejoicing, since all the ingredients are here, which is gratitude, to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes, a mouth with which to give shouts of joy to the moth and the wren, to the sleepy dug-up clam, telling them all over and over how it is that we live forever." To be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes, a mouth with which to give shouts of joy. I begin with this poem by Mary Oliver as a wonderful example of a writer who guides us through words to an apprehension of spiritual things. I would like to spend a few minutes today considering with you how treacherous and essential is this work for all of us. To speak of the most mysterious and beautiful truths in words. A few years ago, I got myself into trouble by agreeing to write a book on the basics of the Christian faith. This is the book John was referring to. My editor wanted a book for absolute beginners in the faith, but for people who were, in other ways, sophisticated readers. She wanted something beautiful, even poetic. She wanted 80,000 words. How hard could this be? It turned out to be bracingly difficult. I mean, I can do the lingo. I've been a Christian believer all my life. I know the Bible pretty well. And by my calculation, I've heard a couple thousand sermons, give or take. But I was not writing to insiders here. My task was to translate for readers who had just walked into the party and didn't speak the language. For instance, I decided it would be good to have a chapter on salvation. Christians are always talking about salvation. What exactly does this mean? Well, it's not heavenly fire insurance. I knew that. That's too simple. It's not making your problems go away in the here and now. Could I talk about salvation as a kind of rescue? Sure, we talk about salvation as a rescue from sin. So now I need a chapter on sin. You can see how one thing leads to another here. Rather like looking up a word in the dictionary and then finding you don't understand three words in the definition and then looking those up and you see where this is going. I wound up writing 11,000 words uh, to explain salvation and another 9,000 trying to explain sin. And that was only two chapters. Sin was easier, by the way. (laughs) I'm a Calvinist, after all. (laughs) After the book came out, I started getting appreciative letters, thankfully, from people who found the book helpful. Surprisingly, many of these people were not newcomers to the faith, the audience we thought we were addressing, but old-timers, people who had been in the church for a long time, including pastors. I was feeling so tired in my faith, one person told me. Thank you for saying things in a fresh way. It started to dawn on me that even people who consider themselves faithful believers and churchgoers get weary. They hear the same words over and over again, and the words become dead to them. Apparently, words wear out. Now, we all know this. We know that words and phrases can become so overused that they hardly mean anything. What we call worn-out words and phrases hackneyed or cliché, like the word ironic, for example. That word is now used to replace other perfectly serviceable words, such as unfortunately, or coincidentally, or surprisingly, or even what a bummer, such as, you know, ironically, Ohio State lost. Actually, that's not a bummer now that I think about it, but anyway. (laughs) Ironic has lost its particular meaning, except maybe in English classes when discussing Flannery O'Connor. Another example is the word literally, which has ceased to mean literally and now means really, really. You know what I mean. These are the sorts of words and phrases that I and my colleagues here at Calvin cross out of student papers. Avoid clichés, we write in the margin. Be more precise. If you have any experience among religious believers, you know that we have our own clichés, too. Some of us tend to overuse phrases like, take Jesus into your heart. Actually, we were talking about this over Christmas break with my family, and one member of my family said, you know, some Christians really need to take Jesus into their spleen. Hmm. (laughs) Think about that one. Whether you're an insider or an outsider, I bet you could name some other phrases like this, born again, salvation by grace, I'm blessed, personal Lord and Savior, stories can become hackneyed too. The animals in the ark, the Samaritan stopped by the side of the road, even the baby in the manger. We can say the words or tell the stories so routinely that if we're honest about it, sometimes all we hear is yada, yada, yada. The words wear out. This is a particular problem in religious language for several reasons. First, some of the words and phrases and stories that become hackneyed are from the Bible. If the Lord is my shepherd feels overused and stale, we can't simply throw it out, think up something new, and move on. Second, some of the phrases we use were very carefully put together to express something quite particular. People died, literally, for the rallying cry of justification by grace through faith. I come from a confessional tradition, and I love theology. So I do not underestimate what's at stake in saying what we believe as carefully as we can. Finally, religious language has a way of becoming precious to people. For every person who feels a particular word or phrase or story has worn out, there is someone else for whom those words tip over a heart full of God. So you see, we have a dilemma. On the one hand, we have a holy book and a complex religious tradition, and thus a pool of language that we use over and over again, which means the words will tend to wear out. On the other hand, we cling to those words exactly because they connect us to the holy book and the tradition and because they tend to take on, as words do, an accumulation of meanings. What I'd like to propose today is not that clinging to familiar religious language, images, and stories is a bad idea. In some ways, it is our task to cling. But I do want to suggest that there are better and worse ways of clinging. Let's start with the worst ways. One way to wear out our language for the things of the faith is to let language become formulaic and never bother to explain it. After finishing the book So Much More, I took on another writing project, this time a book on language and worship called Worship Words. This one is John Whitfleet's fault, actually. I've been listening very carefully for a few years now to the words used in worship, And I've noticed how often we throw about terms and phrases in worship with no effort to explore them or give them any depth or shading. For instance, this whole business of saved by the blood of Jesus. Those of us with a little experience understand that this is a shorthand way of referring to a view of the atonement in which Jesus' death on the cross was seen as the end point to centuries of animal sacrifice, thus answering the ancient world practice of appeasing the gods through blood sacrifice with the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for all who believe in him, and so on. No problem. But this little shorthand perhaps does not yield its meaning quite so automatically to the curious someone standing in the doorway or to the young people already inside. The complex cultural history and theology behind blood imagery is not automatically available. After all, not many of us have ever seen an animal slaughtered, not even for the supermarket, let alone for religious ritual. So when Christian worshipers close their eyes and raise their hands and sing with evident joy, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, it might be good to get in touch with the strangeness of that again. I found online a CD of contemporary music, mu- worship music cheerfully titled Celebrate the Blood. So should we be surprised when people find this perplexing or even a little offensive? Another worse way of clinging is to confuse ways of saying things with the faith itself. In the last chapter of So Much More, a chapter called Mystery, I wrote this As we seek to hold on to the mysterious certainties of the Christian faith, it's only human nature to grip too tightly and compress these certainties into too limited, too simple formulations. Part of us wants truth to come in portable sizes. We must have some way to talk about God and salvation, death and life, suffering, time and eternity. And we must try to explain things in words. Still, sometimes we let those formulations flatten the mysteries, and sometimes we use flattened mysteries to hurt one another. In the fall of 2004, my family was living in California, and my children were attending a Christian school there. On the day of the season's first football game, two football players were killed in a car crash just a mile from the school. On the local news that night, reporters interviewed the coach. Here's what he said to the people of greater Los Angeles. Well, God doesn't make mistakes. Now, I sympathize with the awkwardness of having a microphone thrust in your face at such a time, and I understand that this fellow was attempting to express a very high view of Providence. But in this moment of shattering grief, To reduce the mystery of suffering and providence to such a statement takes your breath away. Perhaps the worst way of clinging to words is when we let little formulaic phrases become a litmus test for correct faith. We mistrust other Christians unless and until they cough up the right code words. And we come off to others as a bunch of squabbling, angry people who spend our time giving each other multiple choice tests for orthodox beliefs, social policies, and voting patterns. We treat language, in other words, with great fear. Some kinds of clinging and all kinds of aggression arise from fear. We might fear losing words that are precious to us, but we might also fear that truth may be more complicated than we thought, may not be reducible to small, portable, fold-up versions. And so out of fear, we become inflexible, brittle, and angry. We use language as a blunt instrument with which to divide the sheep from the goats. In this fear, I think we are underestimating the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised his disciples that the Spirit would guide them into all truth. This is not a once-for-all moment Jesus is talking about, but a constant relationship with a living, dynamic Spirit. So I don't suggest that we stop clinging certainly not to the Bible's language or even to our more culturally local ways of speaking about the faith. But we have to cling wisely and well and in a spirit of trust that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate custodian of truth, however we might stretch our minds and hearts to grasp it and however we might fumble it. This spirit of trust frees us to explore and refresh our religious language, not only for children and newcomers, and outside observers, but for us old-timers, too. We cling to the Bible, but we also keep telling the old stories in new ways. We cling to our precious words, but we keep trying to speak of the mysteries in new language, intelligible in each time and place, so that more people might be drawn near to these mysteries and grab hold themselves. Maybe some of you have one of these water features in your backyard, the little ponds or pools. You know that to keep it fresh and beautiful, you have to pump air into it or otherwise keep the water in motion. If you don't, the water becomes stagnant, algae starts to grow, and before you know it, you have your very own mosquito habitat. and Nobody wants to come and play in your backyard. So how do we keep the water of our words fresh and flowing? There are many possibilities here, but one of our best resources for freshening up stale language is creative writers. Not all of us have the gifts for doing this particular work in the kingdom. It takes deep perceptiveness, a bit of restlessness, and an ear for nuance. Those are precisely the gifts of our poets, novelists, and literary essayists. And I don't mean only writers who consider themselves Christians. Often we can learn a great deal from people on the so-called outside, from other faiths, and from no faith at all. In fact, one of the most important lessons I've learned about the faith in the last few years is that the notion of an inside and an outside is too simple. Many of us insiders have a great deal of outsider in us. We have doubts and resistances, we get fed up with members of our tribe, we get apathetic or just tired. And many people who do not wear a club badge of any recognizable shape still have a sharp perspective on the same longings and loves and beliefs even if they don't attach the official language tags to them. That's why I think we need to pay special attention to those writers who, as writers often do, defy easy categorization. The ones who live and write on the edge of faith, on the edge of organized or disorganized religion, on the edge of where language touches what is most real. That's exactly where we need to listen if we want to keep our words from wearing out. In our literature classes here at Calvin, we introduce students to the wisdom of past writers, and that's an important way of getting a perspective on the present. But for today, I'd like to focus on some writers who are working now. What are these folks telling us? I'd like to identify four main messages. I'm sure there are many more. I'm simply reporting what I've been hearing by listening in on my colleagues in other fields, by listening in on my department as we prepare for another festival of faith and writing, and by listening to my, old, my own teaching, uh, reading, writing, and research. The first thing I'm hearing is this. Show, don't tell. Well, naturally, creative writers would be saying this. This is the biggest cliche there is when it comes to creative writing. But here's what I mean in this context. The writers who seem to be making the deepest connection with readers these days in speaking of Christian faith are not the old-style apologists but the storytellers and memoirists were seeing a shift, in other words, from old apologetics to new apologetics. The old apologetics, typified by C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity, focused on rational arguments for beliefs. Christianity was about believing certain propositions, and the way to become Christian was to get your head around those propositions. This was a strategy adapted to the needs of modernism and secular intellectual skepticism. The New Apologetics, on the other hand, focuses on story. The idea is to show what beliefs look like when lived out in a particular life. This strategy is adapted to postmodern emphasis on particularity and experience. Focusing on story helps us remember that Christianity is about practices as much as beliefs, about ways of doing and belonging as much as ways of thinking. The writers who are doing apologetics these days, such as N.T. Wright, Donald Miller, Rob Bell, and Brian McLaren, to name four very contrasting figures, speak to their own experience, appeal to emotions, and spend less time arguing that a particular belief is true because of this authoritative source or that evidence. Instead, they show what's at stake in people's lives because of a belief. They try to show belief in motion. This is what I tried to do in my book, too, I have five chapters on theology and five chapters on practices such as prayer and Bible reading, all of it as close to the ground of experience as I could make it. One of the interesting things to notice in the development of new apologetics is the shift from authority to authenticity. Readers, particularly young readers, are less interested in hearing what the talking head author with theological degrees has to say. They are more interested in writers who can tell a story with honesty, humor, and a clever turn of phrase. In fact, conventional authority is almost a disadvantage these days. Here's what Brian McLaren writes about his qualifications in the opening of his book, A Generous Orthodoxy. I myself will be considered by many to be completely unqualified to write such a book of theology, being neither a trained theologian nor even a legitimate pastor. Rather, I am only a lowly English major who snuck into pastoral ministry accidentally through the back doors of the English department and church planting, and whose graduate education consisted of learning how to read, a skill most people feel they have mastered by about the third grade. In other words, I am a confessed amateur. You may define amateur as one who works for love, not money, as I might prefer, or you may define it as unskilled, a rude beginner, unprofessional, if you wish. Either way, I can't blame you for deciding to read a book by a certified professional instead of this one. Ladies and gentlemen, beware the English major practicing theology without a license. McLaren is an interesting figure who has gotten into a lot of trouble in some quarters for not hewing to the code words that some people demand of any Christian spokesperson. But you can see from the subtitle to his book here (laughs) that breaking down the boundaries our code words put up is exactly what he's trying to do. He's trying to translate, especially for people who stay away from the church because all they see is a battle of code words. I find his books wonderfully challenging and well worth reading. He's also a gracious person who has handled criticism with exemplary patience. In the summer of 2005, I led one of Calvin's Seminars in Christian Scholarship and I had the privilege of spending two weeks with 14 wonderful writers. Our topic was Writing as Christian Proclamation in Contemporary contexts. One of the things we talked about together was the remarkable popularity of spiritual memoir. Books like Kathleen Norris's Dakota and Cloister Walk, Anne Lamott's Traveling Mercies, and Lauren Winter's Girl Meets God. We observed that memoir was a form of apologetics, too, and that the line between apologetics and spiritual memoir was getting blurrier. As one of our group put it, memoir is a kind of interactive theology. In the emergence of spiritual memoir, we see again this hunger for story. Don't just tell me what you believe or what I should believe. Show me what it looks like in your life. Spiritual memoir is essentially detailed literary testimony. In the messy, humble, even silly details of life, we recognize faith in motion, and our familiar words light up. I'll share with you an excerpt from Anne Lamott's first and I think best spiritual memoir, Traveling Mercies. Readers love Lamott precisely because she lacks every conventional authority, especially as a Christian woman, but she more than makes up for it with authenticity. She demonstrates that a person can survive all matter of trouble and tragedy, get found by Jesus, and still be funny, irreverent, liberal, imperfect, weak, illogical, and neurotic. In a chapter called Forgiveness, Lamotte describes a woman she calls her enemy light. She's the mother of a little boy who is friends with Lamott's six-year-old son, Sam. Lamotte spends several pages describing this woman's crimes, that is to say, her perfections. While Lamotte is flabby, this woman is tightly toned. While Lamotte is disorganized, this woman has it all together. Where Lamotte's son is a struggling reader, this woman's son was an early reader. Worst of all, the enemy light is kind to Lamotte, the sort of person, in other words, for whom resentment feels delicious and forgiveness impossible. Pray as she might, Lamotte continues to hate this woman, until one day, she picks up her son from the woman's house, and the woman persuades her to have a cup of tea. Everywhere you looked, Lamotte says, was more facade, more expensive stuff, stuff. show-offy-I-have-more-money-than-you-stuff, (laughs) plus-you're-out-of-shape-stuff. Then our boys appeared, and I got up to go. Sam's shoes were on the mat by the front door next to his friends, and I went over to help him put them on. And as I loosened the laces on one shoe, without realizing what I was doing, I sneaked a look into the other boy's sneaker to see what size shoe he wore, to see how my kid lined up in shoe size. (laughs) And I finally got it. The veil dropped. I got that I am as mad as a hatter. I saw that I was the one worried that my child wasn't doing well enough in school, that I was the one who thought I was out of shape, and that I was trying to get her to carry all this for me because it hurt too much to carry it myself. I wanted to kiss her on both cheeks, apologize for all the self-contempt I'd been spewing out into the world, all the bad juju I'd been putting on her by thinking she was the one doing harm. This was me. She was the one pouring me more tea. She was the one who had been taking care of my son. She was the one who seemed to have already forgiven me for writing a book in which I trashed her political beliefs, like God and certain parents do, forgiven me almost before I'd even done anything that I needed to be forgiven for. I felt so happy there in her living room that I got drunk on her tea. I started speaking sweetly to everyone, to the mother, to the boys, and my sweet voice started getting all over me like sunlight, like the smell of the Danish baking in the oven, two of which she put on a paper plate and covered with tin foil for me and Sam to take home. Now obviously, the woman has a little baking disorder. (laughs) And I am glad. (laughs) Stories like this give familiar words like forgiveness some real-world traction. They show rather than tell. Lamott's tone, as is true for other writers in this genre, is not always serious and earnest. The new apologetics can be playful and experimental in form. All in all, I think the shift toward new apologetics and lively spiritual memoir is a good thing. Some will complain that we're dealing with style over substance here, and in some cases that might be true. But overall, this shift from the abstract to the embodied is very helpful. Rational arguments do have their place. We need them, and they're not going away. But these edgy writers exhibit a kind of incarnational impulse. They guide us in using words to tell the larger story of redemption with the stuff of our messy, curious, unspectacular, sometimes poignant lives. The second message I'm hearing from creative writers today is practice attentiveness. The best writers have the rare quality of passionate, patient attentiveness, something they offer to the rest of us as a gift. Sometimes people ask me if I've noticed that my students are getting worse. This is a rather obnoxious question, (laughs) as I usually get the sense that the inquirer wants me to say yes so that we can have a little kids these days session. So I always say, oh no, Calvin students are just as wonderful as ever. And mostly, I really mean that. I will say, though, that I think students are finding it more and more difficult to practice sustained attention over the texts we read together, over anything. They're not the only ones. I feel this, too. In our 300-cable-channel-IM-text-message-hyperlink-vague-impression-knee-jerk world, pondering a few lines of poetry for several minutes is a radical, countercultural act. But we mustn't lose our ability to give sustained attention. It's essential to any religious faith for prayer, for Bible reading, and for any kind of compassionate response to each other in the world. Poets are especially good at helping us see the things we ordinary people miss in our frantic states of distraction. For instance, we Christians tend to speak in rather formulaic ways about the beauty of God's creation, or as humor writer Dave Barry puts it, the amber waves of purple mountain majesties fruiting all over the plain. But it takes a poet to help us respond keenly and well to the natural world. Here's another poem by Mary Oliver called The Best I Could Do. The speaker of the poem encounters an owl. The two creatures, the poet and the owl, stop still and regard each other. And thus we stayed for a long time. I would have given a great deal to have invoked some connection eye to eye to know what he thought of me here in this world, his world, his gauzy and furzy acres, sour, weedy, lush, mortal. But except for the hiss, he did not make the least sound, simply stared, as though if he wanted to, he could lift me and carry me away one orange knife for each shoulder, and I, aloft in the air under his great wings, shouting, praise, 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 as I cried for my life. Any of us can sigh at the beauty of a waterfall or a sunset, but Oliver draws our attention to the glory of the creator, expressed in an owl's knife-like claw, the elegant efficiency of it, the thrill of its terrible possibility. Good novelists also help us see with more careful vision and more patient attentiveness, especially into the complexity of human experience. One member of that summer writers group was the, recent, was the novelist Vanita Hampton Wright. Vanita had just released her most recent novel, Dwelling Places, so all of us read the book and talked about it together. The novel tells the story of a family who has lost their farm in Iowa and brings us inside the shattering effects of this event. By giving us the perspective of four different characters, Vanita examines depression in the father, spiritual numbness and suppressed anger in the mother, and the bewilderment of the two teenage children, one of whom takes refuge in Goth and the other in her church youth group. The church plays a complex role in the story, both damaging and deeply healing. The conclusion of the novel is hardly triumphant, but it shows the beauty of even fragile hope. Barbara Brown Taylor draws a useful distinction between between what she calls the language of beholding and the language of belief, between observing what is and affirming what is right. Vanita is one of those writers who is especially good at doing both at once. She writes with great compassion about what is, about people who fall away from belief and make mistakes, about churches who fail in small and spectacular ways, about pain so great it thickens into disbelief, and yet somehow she is able to give gentle affirmation to what is right. She demonstrates that when we look without fear, when we see with both honesty and compassion, we find God in the darknesses too. This requires patient attentiveness, wide open eyes, as well as a wide open heart. Uh, let's see. The third message I'm hearing, we're going to skip a little bit, Kelvin to make sure all these good people get home on time. (laughs) Pardon me a moment. The third message I'm hearing is this. Translate the old, old story into new, new language. That's the glory of the old story, after all. The gospel is amazingly resilient. It is cross-cultural, timeless. By definition, the gospel can find its home in any time and place. However, we do have to help out with unloading the moving van, as it were, and much of that heavy lifting has to do with language. Those of you with experience in missions know all about this. But it's true in our native habitats, too, because people and language and culture are incredibly dynamic. The moving van is always on the move. We'll just take one angle of approach to this translation issue for now, the issue of cultural mythologies. By mythologies, I don't mean falsehoods or mistaken notions, but rather foundational, meaning-making stories. In what ways might people in this time and place most readily connect to the fundamental shape of the Christian story? I could certainly talk about the Narnia stories here, or about Lord of the Rings, but instead I'd like to address a more recent cultural mythologist, the author of the Harry Potter series, J.K. Rowling. Lover or hater, Rowling's stories have obviously resonated widely, And it's useful for us to try to understand why. You are probably aware of the hysteria in some quarters about the Harry Potter books as pedagogues of witchcraft and Satanism. On the other hand, now we're seeing Rowling claimed as a translator of Christian myth for our times. Last week, there was a cover article on the last Harry Potter book in the banner. The banner! And Christian Century ran a long piece on Christian themes in Harry Potter. What is going on? Well, maybe you read the news stories surrounding the release of the final book in the series last summer, in which Rowling was at last willing to discuss the religious images and story shapes in the books, and her own religious faith. In case you haven't heard, J.K. Rowling, by her own public admission, goes to church, struggles to believe, and has stated that the two crucial quotations from the New Testament in the final book of the series, one from Corinthians and one from Matthew, as she put it, almost epitomize the whole series. The astonishing popularity of her books suggests that from her position of, let's call it, struggling faith, she has apparently tapped into fundamental longings and fears among a great many people. What can we learn from this? One thing the Christian analysts usually ignore is the significance of Rowling's humor. Some Christians, as well as some literary critics, appear to detest the Potter books, at least partly because they're funny. Apparently, you can't be a good writer in either of these camps if you indulge in a little silliness or maybe a few gross-out jokes. But the fans overrule the grumpy critics on this one, and I think this is because readers have greatly appreciated in the terrifying real world that we live in the basic exuberance of Rowling's vision. She may be earthy and a little macabre, but she's never cheap or cynical. Her richly imagined world is brimming with inventiveness and wit. That in itself is a basic affirmation of life that people are obviously starving for. As religious people, we need this reminder that a stiffly sanitized, relentlessly earnest world is a false one in the end. As George Herbert would say, all things are big with jest. Tragedy is all too inevitable, but it is not the last word. Delight, from God's point of view, is the beginning and end of creation. If we want to see the world truly then, we might have to risk a little Bobo tuber pus. On the serious side, as Christian critics have been pointing out, Rowling creates an inherently moral universe and emphasizes the importance and difficulty of moral choice. Magical powers in the novel are neutral. If we want to get symbolic about it, magic simply represents the powers that we all have, our talents, our characters, our wills, our ways of influencing the world. Harry's central task in the books, and this is our task too, is to develop those powers and decide how to use them. Harry and his friends must decide over and over to resist the temptation to use their small powers for evil, or what is often more appealing, to simply hide. All of this is fine and good and consonant with a Christian vision of the world, but it is not unlike what we see in other popular mythologies, such as Lord of the Rings or even Star Wars. The important difference, I think, is that Rowling's mythology leaves the sweeping preoccupations of modernism behind to focus on the essence of good, evil, and hope as they appear in the human heart. For instance, the main villain in her stories, Voldemort, has a band of henchmen, as villains always do. But he does not have a huge clone army or an orc army, nor does he represent the threat of the dehumanizing machine. He's not about the great modernist problem of individual freedom versus dehumanizing conformity and technology. Instead, he's a villain on a more intimate scale an examination, I think, of the interior shapes of human evil. He represents the sheer will to power, a kind of cartoony embodiment of Nietzschean philosophy, a wizard ubermensch who bundles together our greatest fears. That was for the philosophy department, by the way. He is a tyrant and a racist, but Rowling emphasizes repeatedly that Voldemort's greatest weakness is that he cannot love, cannot show mercy. Moreover, Rowling shares with many people in our time rather mixed feelings about traditional institutions, religious and otherwise. She creates a world in which the usual signs of religion are missing. The characters do not go to church or speak about God or pray. Interestingly, she has also placed her magical characters in a world not dominated by industry, electronics, or big business. Her depiction of the wizarding school, Hogwarts, and the wizarding government, the Ministry of Magic, suggests a view in which traditional institutions can be a source of identity and honor, but can also rather easily become uselessly bureaucratic, distressingly corrupt, or even pliable tools for evil. Adults in her world can be brave and good, but they can also be hypocritical, myopic, and expert at rationalizing their cruelty for the greater good. By reducing good and evil to a more intimate scale, and by playing down the role of institutions in technology, Rowling is paring down a fundamental question to its essence. Where do we find hope in the face of evil? Throughout the first six novels, Rowling found the beginnings of an answer by focusing on loyalty, friendship, valuing people who are different, and courage, a willingness to risk and suffer for what is right. Access to a good library also helps, as does the ability to fly very fast. The final novel, however, is the most serious meditation on the sources of hope in the face of determined evil. It turns out that the essential difference between Voldemort and Harry is their attitude toward death. Voldemort has twisted and fragmented his soul in order to avoid death. Harry, at the climax of the novel, must embrace death willingly for the sake of others. He must look death in the face and act despite fear. As he comes to this realization, a crucial clue for him is the inscription on his parents' gravestone, an inscription from the magnificent resurrection hymn in Corinthians, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Those of you who have read the books know that the story arc at this point takes on an unmistakably cruciform shape, the dying and rising shape of the gospel. That's all I'll say about that part. But the most important moment of decision for Harry is not the moment of self-sacrifice, but before that, when Harry must decide between claiming a wand of legendary power and completing a task he has been given, a task he's not entirely sure, matters anymore. rolling stories propose that modernist dilemmas about technology and conformity boil down to a more fundamental question, how we respond to our mortality. Voldemort and Harry represent the two most basic answers to that question. We can respond to our mortality by seeking power and defying death or we can respond by befriending death and treasuring love and life all the more for it. Rowling shows that there's nothing sentimental about that latter choice. Laying down the desire for power means laying down our lives one way or another to the end. There's a lot more to say about these books, but for our purposes here, Rowling's mythology, I think, offers some helpful signposts to the place in our old story that touched people's fears and longings right now. Rowling acknowledges the inherently moral nature of the universe, the reality of evil, and the fundamental temptation to seek power in a futile denial of mortality. But she also affirms what we Christians already know, that the right response to death is to trust in a life beyond this life and to turn away from power and toward love. She does not name Christ, but she points to him into what the hope of resurrection represents. The only real source of hope takes a cruciform shape. Finally, the fourth message creative writers are helping us here today is this, learn to laugh more. In the last few years, I've noticed an increased interest in satire and comedy within Christian circles. We see this in mainstream media too, as Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert become even more popular than the standard news outlets. Humor, even satire, is vital to the health of a community. For one thing, it's a healthier way to deal with our dismay than bitterness and despair. How can we live with the pervasive mendacity of our public life except to catch people in it and laugh? Satire is also a way that those with less power can critique those with more power. Sometimes, in order to speak truth to power, we need to take the indirect route of comedy. Finally, satire is a way to critique ourselves to expose the ways in which we fall short of our best principles and our best selves. It gets behind our defenses by keeping us too busy laughing to get all riled up. Good comedy is neither cheap, nor cruel, nor ignorant. It is true, in the sense that the poke of the needle is true when it hits the vein. Satire is essentially a conservative genre. When done well, it reaffirms the best values of a community by exposing the worst. One of the best Christian satirists out there right now is Joel Kilpatrick, the creator of the website Lark News. Joel is a self-professed evangelical who loves his people but has a wicked keen eye for their faults, blindnesses, and well-meant excesses. For example, my husband and I once taught a class on worship reform and we presented our students one day with an article from Lark News' website without telling them about the source. The headline was, animatronic band takes the guesswork out of worship. And the story described a church that had lost its worship band leader and decided to replace him by ordering brand new technology from New Zealand, an animatronic worship band, sort of like the country bear jamboree at Disneyland. This band could be programmed to play anything the congregation wanted. A church member quoted in the article said, real worship leaders have a warmth, but they can also be moody and flaky. It's tough to find one that matches your church. When our students read this article, they were furious. How could a church do this? It was so, so wrong. Then Ron and I let them fume for a minute <laughs> and then watched as the truth sort of dawned on them one by one. It was a joke. I'm not usually this mean as a teacher, by the way. But this led to a great discussion about people's sometimes hopelessly high expectations for their worship teams, and that led to some good thinking about the real purpose of music in worship. Through this preposterous story, Kilpatrick touched the point of his sharp little pen to something that needed some critique, the way churches sometimes turn a razzle-dazzle worship experience into an end, and then go to any means necessary to achieve that end. Kilpatrick proposes a ridiculous means and thereby invites us to reconsider the end. Sometimes lark news stories are just silly. Church splits over spelling of hallelujah. <laughs> but often they have a critical edge to them. Church growth conference helps pastors feel like miserable failures. Yeah. Kilpatrick also has a book out now called A Field Guide to Evangelicals and Their Habitats. If you, are, <laughs> if you are easily offended, please don't read it. But if you're not afraid of a little bracing critique, and you need to release some tension, give it a try. Moving up the literary scale some, will enter the realm of postmodern metafiction, and I'll tell you about the weirdest book I've read lately. It's called Post-Rapture Radio, and the author is a young pastor from St. Paul named Russell Rathbun. The book got great reviews when it came out, but it is unfairly languishing at present, down around the 700,000 ranking on Amazon, a place some of us authors know all too well. Post-Rapture Radio purports to be the story of a pastor in crisis. There certainly seems to be a growing literature of pastors in crisis these days. I haven't really thought about that yet, but there's something to be explored there. The pastor in crisis genre. Anyway, the pastor in crisis in post-rapture radio is coincidentally named Russell Rathbun, and he discovers the writings of another pastor in crisis who more or less loses his mind. The format of this novel is made up of journal entries, sermons, and dream visions of the crazy pastor embroidered with the editorial notes of Rathbun. The lines between reality and fiction, sanity and insanity blur as the crazy pastor perceives more and more clearly that he cannot survive in the megachurch world in which he is employed. He has identified what he calls the contemporary Christian culture conspiracy and it's driving him mad. Here's an excerpt in which a crazy pastor named Nick explains to another crazy pastor, they they do seem to proliferate in this story, about why he can't work at his church anymore. Nick is explaining a little hysterically that church leaders are shallow, hollow, misguided, and dead. Here's what he says. For example, at my former place of employment, when I taught the baptism preparation classes, I got in a lot of trouble for refusing to include the final session, the one where you helped the baptism candidates decide on the best package. The standard package came free of charge and included a baptism certificate and a candle to commemorate the event. We were to offer the standard package, but to point out that it didn't provide much in the way of artifacting the event. In order to make the event more real for the candidates, it was recommended that they at least choose the Ethiopian package, named for the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip baptized on the side of the road. This package included a frame for the certificate and the candidate's name in gold on the candle. Hardly anyone chooses this one, and I always suspected it was purposefully named to discourage people, because nobody really wants to associate their baptism with a eunuch. (laughs) The Cornelius was the right choice. Named for the wealthy centurion of the Italian cohort that Peter baptized, this package cost quite a bit more, but after all, you are only baptized once, or more, if you feel like it's necessary. The Cornelius included the certificate with a frame upgrade, the candle with name in gold and a candle holder, plus a videotape of the baptism and an Egyptian cotton bath towel embroidered with the words, Remember your baptism on it. (laughs) See what I mean, he says. Post-Rapture Radio is for readers who like a challenge. It uses cutting-edge fiction techniques and satirical humor, spoofing the easy certainties and cultural accommodations of evangelicalism. It also makes fun of the overwrought earnestness of its weird protagonist, but the fun is embedded in a serious extended exegesis of the book of Revelation, recasting classic interpretations of Revelation as God's dividing judgment and finding there God's wide mercy. Rathbun suggests to us that difficult prophetic messages sometimes require a highly inventive medium and that humor can help. So, to sum up, these are the main messages I'm hearing from edgy creative writers these days. Show, don't tell. Practice attentiveness. Translate the old, old story. And learn to laugh. Last semester, in one of my classes, we were talking about the importance of stories, and I suggested that maybe in our culture, we have too many stories. We all shared a sense of weariness for a moment, and then one very insightful student remarked that actually the worst problem is that we practice bad economics with our stories. We are unaware of their power on us, so we neglect to weed out the good ones from the bad ones. Perhaps we all need to think of ourselves as stewards of language. We need to speak of the great mysteries of the faith in words, but even our most precious words sometimes seem to wear out. This is nothing to be feared. It simply prompts us to welcome anew the Spirit's work in us of retelling the good news in every time and place. Not every writer can help us do this task well, of course, We have to help each other find those writers with a gift for this good kingdom work. Find them by reading reviews, by talking together, by consulting people we trust. So I suppose in the end, this has all boiled down to an elaborate way of saying exactly what you would expect any English professor to say when given a podium in an hour of your time. Avoid cliche, be more precise, and above all, keep reading. Thank you.
1: We thank Deborah for a wonderful lecture, and we have time for a few questions. There are microphones in the middle of the auditorium, and if you do have a question, uh, feel free to move there so that we can all hear, as well as those at rem- our remote uh, sites. There's
2: a woman in the middle there.
1: Yeah. Okay. We have been taught that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Now, is inspiration still going on? Uh, Your writings, Ms. Rowling's writings, is it a different type of inspiration? Is there no inspiration or is
2: it similar? Nothing like a simple question to start (laughs) out with (laughs) there. Hmm, I'm going to do some theology on the fly here, so I'm hoping that my good colleagues will correct me. But I wonder if an analogy to general and special revelation might help here. That there's a a kind of general inspiration that the Holy Spirit makes available to people. And then there's a kind of special inspiration that applies to our holy books. Um, I don't know, does that work? Is that helpful? Maybe we can think about it that way. It's a a puzzle I haven't really puzzled out, and I'm not sure anyone really has. But there's certainly evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in creative writing. And um, I think we need to rejoice and delight in that, and also be discerning about it, of course. That's, that's why we're here today. We talk with each other, we form communities, and we try to discern where, where is the work of the Spirit and where is sort of evidence of our fallenness, right? Um, one thing that I, I think is helpful, and I thought about as I worked on so much more, is how we understand inspiration. And it was helpful to me to think of inspiration and the root of that word in breathing, and to think of inspiration not of the scriptures, I mean now, not as a single exhalation into these texts, but as this kind of constant in-and-out breathing of the Spirit into those texts. I mean, one of the ways in which we experience them as inspired is that they are reliable places to go to be in contact with Christ, right? I mean, the Spirit uses those words reliably. They're not magic. They don't always work for everybody, and in fact, you know, people can use them to thwack one another or, to play proof text poker or these really sort of not very spiritual ways of using the Bible. But how we experience inspiration is, is this kind of reliability of when we go there, that's where the spirit works. So that's how I think about it anyway. If I have theologians in the, in the group who want to correct me, please feel free. The microphones are open to you. Okay. Yeah.
1: In a time when a lot of really deep issues are threatening the Christian church's unity, do you see the growth of Christian satire as potentially a threat to the church?:
2: Oh, goodness. Is there ever a time when there aren't lots of issues threatening the church's unity? <laughs> um, do I see satire as a threat? I think I see it as quite the opposite. Maybe I'm too optimistic about do I need to be more Calvinist about satire? Um, you know, I'm sure it's totally depraved and fallen and all that. Um, <laughs> no doubt, you know, everything is. I guess I see satire as, as, a, as I say, a, a rather conservative genre. I mean, done well, satire can call us back to our best selves by, by exposing in an exaggerated form where we're sort of getting off track. That's, maybe that's really the test of good satire. Is it ultimately out of a kind of fierce love for the good? Or is it just indulging in meanness? I mean, there certainly is a line there that needs to be drawn. Um, So I actually see satire as helpful and potentially healing. Obviously, it can be done badly and meanly, but I think it can be potentially healing. But we have to be open to it, too. We we can't be so brittle and easily offended that we're unable to see a fair critique. I mean, it's true, it can't be an ignorant or false critique, but we, we also have to be open to seeing fair critiques.
1: First of all, thank you. Uh, This has been a very, very enjoyable seminar. Um, The the show, Don't Tell I'm a a youth pastor uh, here in the area. And and I I absolutely agree and and really uh, appreciate that. What I wrestle with and and wondering if you can comment on is Mm -hmm. um, how how do we deal with uh, the need for knowledge uh, Mm. and and still uh, not simply becoming, it it seems to me that orthopraxy uh, is eating orthodoxy Uh, and and will potentially burn in hell uh, for that. Um, And so what I'm trying to figure out is how do we deal with the two issues of of showing but at the same time making sure that we're getting uh, the the correct information.
2: Oh, yes. You put your finger on something really important there. Is the postmodern climate emphasizing um, belonging and even behaving over right belief? And as I said, I'm, I'm such a, a big advocate of theology, and, and I come from a confessional tradition. Um, I, too, am, am wondering, how do we, how do we persuade people? Because I think this is right. How do we persuade people of the importance of theology? And, and that it does matter what you believe. Um, and you know, I guess to fall back on what I've already been saying, one way is t- to show, don't tell, what's at stake. I mean, the reason that we believe, um, well, now I have to think of an example here on my feet. <laughs> um, the reason that we believe worship is not a show, for example, a theology of worship. What's at stake if we make it a show? What's at stake if we uh, fulfill our, our actual committed beliefs about worship? So to be able to describe that, maybe even demonstrate it, I mean, I guess that's a good place for the work of the imagination. Let's take this scenario and, and play it out and see what happens. Um, but I think that's something that we're working through right now. How do, we, how do we convince people who are very experiential, very rooted in story, how do we convince people that what you believe matters? I'm tempted to say have lots of classes on catechism, but I, I don't think that's probably the right solution, and I'm sure you would agree with me on that. Yeah, I don't know what the solution is, but I agree with you. It's something that we need to work on. How do we express why theology matters? Thank you.
1: Our time is up today, um, and I will point out that books are for sale in the lobby, and Deborah Reenster will be there to uh, sign copies. Uh, thank you for coming to the January series today, and once again, we thank our speaker for a wonderful thank Thanks.